everyone. It's the Drunken Disorderly Podcast coming to you live from Raptor Den Studios, which is really just my basement. Not my mom's basement, though. I'm moving up in the world. We are brought to you by the Launchpad Media. Go to thelaunchpadmedia.com for all of your podcasting needs. There's some great stuff on there, like uh, Alex Merced has a podcast. Johnny Rocket's podcast is on uh, the Launchpad Media. And now we are their video podcast on there. So you can go there, check us out. Um, there's not a lot of a back catalog for us because I just started our YouTube channel this weekend. And that was a pain in the ass, by the way. But now we have a YouTube channel. You can check us out there, too. Uh, just look for Drunken Disorderly Media on YouTube. Um, a lot of fun stuff happening. Our Facebook hit 3,000 likes at 710 tonight. So that was a big deal for us. I, I actually had the person's name. And I'm like, uh, might not be the best form. So I just I made myself forget it. But uh, thank you to everyone who liked us today to get us over the hump. Um, and remember, Friday, July 5th, uh, if the LPNE can raise $1,000, and you're, Scott says we're a little over halfway. We're about half, we're halfway there. All right. If the LPNE can raise $1,000 at Freedom between Friday. Now, between now and Freedom Friday. Yep. Uh, I will, we will live stream me singing. Uh, was it I Want It That Way? <laughs> yep, I yep. Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys. Yeah, so uh, if you want to see me suffer in public, uh, go ahead and go to... Uh, Scott, give us the website for that. Oh, it's lpne.org. Libertarian Party in Nebraska. lp.ne.org. There we go. So, uh, yeah. so with no further ado, Dre, take it away. Hey, everybody. We um, are missing Erin tonight. She's got a new job, so she's not going to be able to join us as uh, consistently as she would like. But congrats to her. She is uh, furthering her career. We have Scott tonight. Hey, Scott. Hi. And I'm very happy to announce we have Dr. Kyle Varner with us this evening. We would love to talk to you about your new book, uh, White Coat Cartels, which uncovers the dark side of U.S. health market, as well as um, your work with Venezuelan libertarians and Libertarian International and or sorry, Liberty International and Oliver Globetrotting. You are never home. How are you? I'm good. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm looking forward to a drunken, disorderly conversation, even though I'm not drinking right now. <laughs> it's not a hard and fast rule, but we prefer that you do. Well, and you're okay. Uh, you're, you got an excuse. So, All right. Very good. So, Kyle, you're not home right now. You're uh, at a hospital. Yeah, I'm at a, a rural hospital in the Southwest. Uh, my practice is as a hospitalist, and so I, I travel around to rural hospitals, and um, they just called me. So, um, and he's on call. Yes. I'm, one moment. Call. He is the doctor, guys. And he is on so call. So I have him on mute so when he comes back. Okay. So this is this is always the fun part of having Kyle on a podcast is you never know when he's going to have to step away for a minute. <laughs> he literally just said, it's very highly unlikely they'll call me. I told him I was going to be busy for just an hour. So hopefully, you know, no one's dying or anything right now. <laughs> right. Um, I'm sure they would come to the door if somebody was dying. They wouldn't no, just 
It is only 8.04, and they and they probably know Kyle, and they probably thought, well, he runs on Libertarian time, so <laughs> maybe, they're, maybe they're just not uh, not starting on time. Maybe took a took a chance that we weren't starting on time yet. So you know, half the time we do go live at 8.04, so there is that. <laughs> Look, that only happened last week because my dumbass had us on the wrong page, okay? Give me oh, a break. Right. I'm old. Okay, you can see that it's, it's going back, and it's great. Look at how gray this beard is. I'm I, am, so I don't have any gray hair and it doesn't grow on my face. <laughs> like if you have a gray beard, we have issues. <laughs> I have a gray beard. I could make some money if traveling around sideshow. Yeah. It's not Side a freak show anymore. It's not a freak show anymore, dude. It's just, it's just, right. I, I, you know what? I now identify as a woman. So I'm a woman with a gray beard. Yeah. <laughs> Done. Old and beautiful. Brave and beautiful. Brave, brave, hashtag brave. So, um, <laughs> when, when Kyle gets back, something that we're going to talk about. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, sorry. He's this totally is right. This is great. Um, Laura Ewing, if if Kyle was on Libertarian Time, he wouldn't have shown up. He would be posting about it on Facebook. <laughs> and fuck you and the horse you rode on. Here's why. Yeah. I try. I try so, and stay out of all that. I just. I can't. I have the energy for it, man. Okay. Because I know somebody's going to write a damn soliloquy, and I don't want right. to run down on the points. Welcome back. I hope nobody's dying, right? Nobody's dying. No, everything is all right. So uh, okay. let's get back to the program. No, Good deal. Good deal. So you don't spend a lot of time at home because you're uh, a doctor, and you go, you travel, right, basically, to yeah. treat people. Yeah, I travel to rural hospitals and I basically live in the hospital 24-7. I'm in the hospital right now. Um, and so I, I see all the patients uh, that get admitted to the hospital. So that's so uh, how, long, what I do. how long do you stay at one hospital at a time typically? Uh, it's usually a week, but it can be up to two weeks, sometimes a little longer, depending on just the needs of the hospital and my schedule and stuff. And is it always rural? Because they, they obviously need... Yeah, uh, it's my preference to work in rural hospitals because uh, I think it's a little more challenging and I enjoy that. But uh, I also do occasionally work at larger hospitals as well. Uh, I think it's important to have a mix because you don't see all the type of cases at a rural hospital that you'll see in a, like a teaching hospital. So I try to at least you know keep my foot in, in on the medical staff at a couple of tertiary care centers and spend a little time there so that I can you know, stay, stay up to date with, with things like uh, ICU care and stay up to date with, with some of the more uh, complex patients as well. Um, Scott, I'm sorry, did you have something? No. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. So that keeps you busy and traveling to all sorts of cool places. You were in Beijing last week? Well, I connected through Beijing and I was in Mongolia. We, I, I serve on the board of directors of Liberty International and we just had our uh, World Liberty International World Conference in Mongolia. Uh, that was really great. Uh, met freedom fighters from all over the world and had a really great time. The, the North Koreans denounced uh, one of our speakers as an American spy and sent the police after him. Um, so I, I consider that a, a great success. If we upset the North Korean regime, we are doing something right. <laughs> I guess as long as you're far enough away from the North Korean reach, that's okay. Right. right. Well, actually, interestingly, Mongolia is kind of in the North Korean reach because our original speaker had to cancel on us because he was advised by the South Korean security that he they could that he they couldn't guarantee his safety in Mongolia. There are too many uh, North Korean agents. Really. So, 
somebody else who was like a little bit lower profile came in his place. Where was the speaker from that was advised not so to the, come? The speaker from was from South Korea, but he's a prominent North Korean defector. So, oh. uh, so instead, an American uh, of South Korean origin who works with that organization came in his place and gave his talk for him. Um, uh, yeah, but you know, I mean, the the North Korean regime is a special kind of evil. It may be that that, that there's no other regime on Earth quite as evil as the regime of Kim Jong Un. Yeah, when you see some of the behind the scenes, it's just scary how much that we don't know because what we see is awful enough. So I got to ask, so what you're saying is that America should go take over North Korea, right? That's that's what you're advocating. <laughs> is that right what now? you're saying? Is that what you're saying, Kyle? No, no I'm absolutely not saying North Korea. I, I think with, uh, as much as I hate the North Korean regime, I also realize that... Uh, that you know, liberating North Korea is is not a realistic possibility because uh, you you risk creating a really large war that makes the situation worse. But if you open up lot routes of trade, I, I don't have any illusions that this is going to turn the North Korean regime into good guys. But you're going to open up more avenues for human beings to escape, uh, and you're going to be able to engage. You're going to be able to reduce the tensions. I, I would like nothing more than to see the regime fall, but I don't see a path forward for that. And so I'd like to see people suffer less. It's not, uh, it, it, I can't make the world a perfect place. I wish I could, but uh, no, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, an attempt to militarily liberate North Korea would lead to a confrontation with China and potentially with millions of deaths. And, and that's not something that's, that's, that's good. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be a case where the harms outweigh the benefits. That's a really good point, though, talking about opening up the lines of trade so that they could have more opportunities to sneak out. Never heard anybody bring that up before. What a great point. Right. You know, it's when you talk to the defectors, you know how much they suffer when they're defecting. Usually they go across the uh, the river in the north and then they kind of go across through land, through China, up through Mongolia and eventually get around to South Korea because South Korea will give them a safe haven and they can have a life there. But how do they, but they have to go with, you know, uh, human traffickers. Many times these people are forced into forced labor or prostitution along the way. It's a hellish route. I've talked to quite a few North Korean defectors who've told me their stories of suffering, of loss of loved ones and all of that. It's horrible. You know, they can't just say, I want to leave and leave. And of course, the, the border on the South right now is so militarized. I mean, there's only one case of a military defector who got shot while he was defecting. Yeah. And, and um, so, yeah, if we have more trade, there are going to be more opportunities for people to escape, hopefully by routes that don't involve forced sexual ser uh, servitude and these kind of things. She or uh, that soldier did live, right? Like I, yeah. I think I remember this story. Yeah, he lived. Uh, they actually found that he had a lot of parasites. Uh, right, I remember he's, that too. He's like, you know, Everybody comes out of there, does don't they? What they are what? they? What is happening with the food? Why are they getting parasites? Uh, well, like, you know, that's a condition of poverty, and. Um, my, my my suspicion is that that most people in the country are are not having uh, modern sanitation, and um, there's there's just not a very good system of health. These are extremely poor people. Anywhere in the world you go, where people are extremely poor, parasites are kind of a something that goes along with that. You know, the, the measures of health that we look at, good nutrition, good sanitation, uh, avoidance of preventable infectious disease, all these things come with wealth. And that comes with capitalism and free markets and, and, and uh, you know, security, private property and all these things. When you don't have those, you have abject poverty and then people suffer really bad health outcomes. 
I don't think socialists think about things like that, you know, when they're talking about it's going to be this little utopia. Well, everyone suffers because they can't get these basic things that are considered, you know, a wealthy person's thing, you know, soap and hygiene and sanitation is, you know, everybody gets it here. We take it for granted, obviously. Right. And I am convinced that free market capitalism is the number one most important public health uh, development in human history. We saw that uh, that with the development of capitalism in the, the 1700s and then the, the Industrial Revolution, we saw life expectancies go through the roof. We saw infant mortality fall. We saw preventable diseases fall dramatically. And then, you know, in countries that abandoned socialism, similar things happen. When Chile abandoned socialism, infant mortality fell by 50% in five years. The life expectancy just kept going up and up and up in Chile. The reason is because people are, people are wealthy. They can do all these important basic things to stay alive. They can afford health care. You know, it's very nice that socialists say we're going to distribute free health care. But as in all things distributed by government, it's extremely problematic. But when you when people become wealthy enough to buy health care, they buy it and they do better. And so the, the fundamental thing we should be wondering about and working towards is, is the development of a system of free market economies, free market capitalism, so that people can get wealthy and their health will be better. So let's let's start talking about Venezuela. There is so much to unpack here. Can you so I, I think I know I have a cursory idea of everything that has transpired in the last since the election and all that. Um, can you kind of just give us a couple bullet points and then let us know what is happening and what you're doing and all that? I watched your video today and thanks for making me cry at work. <laughs> well, thank you for that. So, you know, uh, Venezuela has had problems for uh, it's, you know, for the last hundred years because it's been a petro state and political clientelism ruled the day. Uh, And um, it caused a lot of cultural problems and and the political cultural problems uh, with basically, uh, you know, the, the the way people view politics in Venezuela is as a system of patrons and clients with petrodollars flowing through the whole system. And so that's been a problem from the very beginning. Uh, But in 1999, uh, the Venezuelans elected a demagogue named Hugo Chavez. And Hugo Chavez won the natural resource uh, lottery. Uh, uh, So when I say he won the natural resource lottery, I mean he came to power at a time when oil prices reached historic high. So he was able to upend the entire uh, client uh, and patron system to make everybody his client. And he was able to use these dollars, these petrodollars that flowed into the country like never before due to something he didn't have anything to do with. But he was able to use that money to undermine the institutions and undermine the rule of law, began chasing out independent judges, replacing them with loyalists, and began uh, a ton of programs to make himself very popular at the time, but then also to make uh, access to those programs and access to state jobs dependent on supporting him. And so um, fast forward to his death um, and, um, in uh, 2012 or 2013, um, Hugo Chavez had undermined the rule of law completely. And his predecessor, uh, sorry, his, his, uh, his predecessor, uh, Nicolas Maduro, took over and uh, continued that process. But by this point, the oil prices had normalized and now Venezuela was suffering from extreme poverty. And there was no longer this this flood of cash, but he had set up kind of a totalitarian system. And one of the interesting things that he did was he uh, actually 
uh, brought Cuban military in as an enforcement arm. So he embedded Cuban troops in with all the army units because in 2002, he almost succumbed to a coup d'etat. And uh, uh, he, after that coup d'etat is when he really upped the ante. And he, uh, for example, uh, he expanded the number of generals tremendously. So there are about 2,000 generals now. So it's really hard for one or two to kind of rebel against him, put the Cubans in as people who will inform on you if you appear disloyal, who will shoot you if you uh, try to rebel. So he created this system where rebelling was next to impossible. Um, and then they also, of course, made uh, a system of paramilitaries called colectivos, which are uh, groups armed by the state who take their orders from the state who are compensated directly with cash and also with the right to run organized crime in their town. So they, they run a, basically an extortion racket in every town that they, uh, of Venezuela. And these guys wear masks. They show up and shoot people in public. They're, they're, the, they're the real enforcers of the regime. So they did all of this. And in 2018, Maduro was up for re-election. He had banned all of the, the credible opposition uh, candidates. He... Uh, had uh, from, from the election. Uh, he had uh, used the paramilitaries to suppress opposition activity. He had uh, put the Electoral Council under direct control of his loyalists. He had chased all the Supreme Court justices out of the country and uh, replaced them with loyalists. He also does, uh, uh, basically stripped the National Assembly that was actually democratically elected and opposition controlled of its powers and created an unconstitutional group called the Constituent Assembly made up only of members of his party. And uh, and invested it with most of the powers of the National Assembly. And so he did all these anti-democratic things and he held a sham election. It wasn't a real election, it was a sham election and declared himself the winner. And the National Assembly didn't uh, accept this. The president of the National Assembly, Juan Guaido, was then appointed by the National Assembly and recognized by the Supreme Court in exile. It's important to realize that the Supreme Court justices he chased out of the country didn't uh, leave their offices and they still needed to issue opinions. So recognized by the Supreme Court in exile, recognized by the National Assembly, Juan Guaido became president of Venezuela recognized now by 50 countries. The countries who are not recognizing Juan Guaido, China, Turkey, Russia. What do they have in common? They're all authoritarian states run by dictator-like strongmen who obviously have common cause with Nicolas Maduro. And yeah. so and since then, there's been this tremendous effort to get the military to switch sides, an effort that's been unsuccessful because of the Cuban uh, enforcers within the ranks of the military. There's been this tremendous effort to restore law and order to Venezuela that as of yet has been unsuccessful, but that is uh, still going forward. We're still, I, I'm, I'm committed to helping in whatever way I can. And the Venezuelan people are uh, desperate for a little bit of freedom and a little bit of free markets because they're suffering really terribly right now. So I read today, I can't remember who did this, but um, during one of the elections, the doctors were instructed to use medical care as leverage for votes. Was that right. the majority? Yeah. This was the last election. This was the election that uh, some scholars from the Ron Paul Institute are touting as a legitimate and reason that the world should recognize Nicolas Maduro. And doctors were instructed to use medical care as leverage for him, to question people on their intentions to vote, but withhold oxygen from uh, so that it would be available closer to the time of the election and it would be usable as leverage. So oh yeah. This is extremely inhumane, extremely undemocratic, and it undermines the claims of anybody that anybody might have that Nicolas Maduro is a legitimate leader. He is a criminal, and his government is not a government, it is a mafia. 
And I think it's important that we realize that. And when people start calling Nicolas Maduro president or saying that, 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 that he has some kind of a government, what they're really doing is uh, making a mockery of the idea of democracy and uh, making a mockery of uh, the, this situation. Nicolas Maduro is a criminal. So you've gotten some heat today on Twitter from the Ron Paul Institute guys. Right. So what, tell us about that and then tell us what, you know, where do we go from here? Like, sure. obviously you don't advocate for the U.S. going in and just cracking skulls. Like, what is the answer? Right. So, so uh, you know, about a month uh, ago, roughly a month ago, one of the uh, libertarian uh, activists in Venezuela who had been arrested and beaten up by Maduro's thugs uh, and then released asked me if I could make a video to show the libertarian community in Venezuela that they have the support of the global libertarian community. And I agreed. I, I have been uh, in a film studio making some health education videos for my business, drvarner.com. And so I quickly made that video. Um, and um, it's about a 10 minute video. Uh, okay. It's a very, very professional video that's 10 Thank minutes you. long. Okay. I was just like, yeah, I just threw it together. Well, no, I mean, I had a professional crew working with me, uh, which was very nice to have. And so I had this video, we made the video, and then uh, the first thing we did was sent it to our libertarian contacts in Venezuela. And most states of Venezuela, libertarians, uh, Movimiento Libertario Venezuela had gatherings where they showed it in person before it was released in public. We let them know, you guys, we have your back. We support you and we admire you because I think the really important message for me to tell these people is, you guys are heroes of freedom. You're working under conditions that I can't even imagine. You're taking risks I can't imagine. You're sacrificing in ways I can't imagine. And uh, I admire you. Uh, you guys are doing great things and I wanted them to know that. And um, I also wanted to tell them um, in no uncertain terms about the virtues of capitalism and free markets. And I wanted to tell them that I support the same plan that they support. So let me outline what that plan is. It's okay. The, it's supporting the, the transitional presidency of Juan Guaido. Let me make it very clear. Movimiento Libertario Venezuela is not a, a group that is a fan of Juan Guaido. We have huge ideological differences with him. And um, those ideological differences mean that it will never support him in an election for, for president. But he, he's, he's the president, right? the interim president right now. And his job is to get us to a point or get them to a point of free elections. And then when there are free elections, there will uh, Movimiento Libertario Venezuela is going to be supporting a capitalist option. And that capitalist option is Maria Corina Machado, who is the leader of Vente Venezuela. She has been a strong opponent of socialism through her entire 20-year political career in Venezuela. She's an excellent leader, and she has excellent ideas about how to move Venezuela beyond this client-patron system, this petrostate system, and into a free market society. Her slogan is radically liberal, radicalmente liberales. And liberal in Spanish has the connotation of libertarian. It doesn't have the connotation yeah. we have in the United States for the word. So, okay. that's, so, so that's the next step. And then um, the next step after that is that uh, libertarians around the world are going to send our best and brightest to help her in whatever way she needs. Because there are people in the libertarian movement who have been very active in Eastern Europe after the fall of communism. And, you know, you can do privatization and market-based reforms well, or you can do them poorly. And we've got a huge network of people who know 
you know, exactly based on their experience, how to do this kind of thing well. And so we're going to be there to support Maria Karina Machado as she goes about transforming Venezuelan society. We're giving her the advice on how to do these things well, making sure that she'll never lack for good, high quality, free market based advice and support. And then, of course, the final thing that needs to happen is that the people involved in the Maduro Mafia need to receive justice. And, and so those are the five yeah. steps that I outlined. They're not my plan. They're Movimiento Libertario Venezuela's plan. And, right. um, and, I, and I outlined that plan as a way of showing that I understand what they're doing and that I support what they're doing and, and stand ready to continue supporting it. Um, so uh, Nick Farwark of the National Libertarian Party shared my video. And it got a lot of support. People, I mean, I got hundreds of messages from Venezuelans. I got a lot of messages from libertarians. But then some people with the Ron Paul Institute uh, decided they didn't like the video because they support Nicolas Maduro. I can only speculate as to why, but they, they support Nicolas Maduro. They attack Juan Guaido on a regular basis. They understand next to zero about the actual situation on the ground. And they associate openly with leftists who uh, are, um, for example, participated in the embassy invasion here in Washington. So they're, they're, they're a group of people who are highly, highly questionable in regards to their political affiliations and regards to the people who they support. Uh, they attacked Nick Sarwark for sharing the video. They've attacked me. Um, I've written a response. Uh, the, the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute is not very uh, good in terms of his ability to engage intellectually. Uh, the first thing he said to me on Twitter was, you lose, you say dumb things. So he called me dumb. And last night he actually called me, or an article I wrote, it's not clear because he's not so good with grammar either, but uh, he called me a turd. And, uh, uh, this is a. Uh, this is. Why didn't he just call you a duty head and get it over with? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, I mean, I wasn't. You know, I mean, that's about. the model he's operating on right now. You smell. You dirty head. You have germs or fleas. That's what I'm hearing. Right. Uh, it's it's extremely uh, distressing uh, to see that somebody is going to uh, be supposedly a leader in the anti-war movement, which is a movement I support, and is going to use such low-level rhetoric that will never convince anyone of anything. I mean, the, the, the poverty of thought and the poverty of, of intellectualism and, and the low quality of information coming out of the Ron Paul Institute is sad. And it's sad because if they're the ones fighting for world peace, we better get ready with, for World War II because they're completely ineffective. They, uh, they resemble a Russian troll farm far more than they resemble serious intellectuals. So devil's advocate, should what what should what if anything should we do or the US military government do as in regards to Venezuela and Maduro and Guado? Cuz you know, you have a lot of people saying we should go in, we should help them out and you know, most libertarians are not for helping with regime change. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think anybody should go in militarily unless they ask for it. And there's a, a, a provision by which they can ask for it. Article 187 of the Venezuelan Constitution can be invoked, and that authorizes foreign military activity in the country. Uh, President Guaido has not invoked that despite strong calls for him to do so. I think that the Venezuelan uh, National Assembly, which is the legitimate government, would need to invoke that. They would need to request the help. Um, do I think it would be a good thing for American troops to go there? No, because I think it would exacerbate ideological tensions. Do I think Colombia might? I think Colombia might be a, 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 
a better option. Colombia has a very strong vested interest in resolving this crisis. You know, a million refugees are on their border right now. Disease is spreading within Colombia because of the, the bad conditions. And so what I would say is that, that Colombia and Brazil really need to step up to the plate. Brazil has some problems because their military is divided because, uh, you know, uh, the previous leftist government in Brazil had in, in many ways kind of tampered with the military. And so there are still some left, left wingers in the military in Brazil. Uh, and Herr Bolsonaro doesn't have complete control. And so Brazil is probably not an option. But Colombia is. And I don't think it would take uh, a huge force. Uh, so I, I think Colombia may be an option. Another option may be a private army. Um, you know, there are a thousand Venezuelan soldiers on the border right now uh, who have defected, who can't, by, the Colombian government is not allowing to go back. Um, there are a lot of people who want to take up arms in Venezuela against the Maduro mafia, but uh, it's hard to come by guns. So I was just um, saying, where are they going to get the arms? Didn't they right, take well, home? You know, we have firearm export regulations in the United States that present, prevent Americans from sending them arms. I would gladly uh, help arm the opposition, but I can't legally do it. Um, there's So, I mean, I think one, one of the most important libertarian things we could do is to let uh, let Americans contribute voluntarily to uh, our, our brothers and sisters south of the uh, south of us who are fighting for their freedom and let us arm them. It does, the government okay. doesn't need to do this. What they, I, I remember somebody telling me that there was a gun called the Liberator because everybody tells me everything that is ever made with my last name um, that they used to <coughs> airdrop in World War II. I can't remember what country, but it's like a one shot and then you can use it to kill people in another way. But it was a pretty cool thing. I don't. I don't know about this, but uh, I, I know that 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 when that if the uh, the opposition were armed, that it wouldn't be say that that if you're in the military, it no longer becomes so safe to support the Maduro mafia. And right now, the safe thing to do is to support the Maduro mafia because of the Cuban supporters. And I think you would see a major sea change if you saw even a moderate amount of armed resistance. But that the, the Venezuelans have to be able to step up and and uh, and begin this themselves. And American troops will not. Uh, uh, be, uh, I think, an ideal solution, and I would be against that. But um, the, that, that doesn't mean that we as individual Americans can't help, but our government needs to get out of the way. Is, uh, is, uh, so from what I've heard, uh, Russia and Cuba are both providing kind of military, not military assistance, but like military um, expertise uh, is that is that true? Am I hearing correctly? Right. So, well, Russia has been, uh, for example, maintaining their anti-aircraft systems and uh, giving them financial support uh, in exchange for gold. And they've been kind of acting as a mule for gold to get around sanctions. Um, and so so that's been Russia's primary role. But Cuban's role is to have Cuban troops embedded in their military. They have a Cuban military base in Venezuela. The Cubans are, uh, I mean, they're, and they've been, since Hugo Chavez invited them into the country, they've been a, a force for totalitarianism and they run intelligence units there. So, you know, there are many Venezuelans who would say that they're, they're under a Cuban invasion uh, that's just not being recognized. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, when you want to talk about non-interventionism, I think you need to be equally concerned about interventionism from the U.S. as you need to be about interventionism from Cuba. Cuba has had a, a tremendously deleterious impact on the entire Latin American region ever since the, the Castro revolution. They've sent armed Marxists to most countries in Latin America. And um, we can't ignore this. They're, they're a force of, of violence and a force of destabilization. And they're 
working to keep Maduro in power. Do you think so? I've always been of the, not always, but for most of my adult life, I've been kind of of the opinion that libertarians hyper focus on their own government's failing so much that sometimes we forget that the rest of the world sucks too. Right. And and I think that might be the underlying motivation of the Ron Paul Institute. You know, they they recently published an article attacking the uh, demonstrators in Hong Kong because they may have uh, been supported by the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, and uh, th it seems to me that uh, that basically they're so against war that they're willing to slander the victims of oppression. They're willing to support dictators if only it means they can put a finger in John Bolton's eye. And I'm no fan of John Bolton, but I'm not going to uh, attack decent people who are suffering as a way of putting a finger in his eye. That's just immoral. And it's also unwise because decent people everywhere reject that kind of argument. You need to be serious. You need to be decent if you want to work on, on creating a more peaceful world. You don't need to act like a troll. Right. There's plenty of other reasons to stick a finger in John Bolton's eyes. We don't need to make them up. Just like everything. Right, right. Everybody else. Look at what's going on with Iran. If you want to be a credible force in opposing war with Iran, you should try not squandering your credibility by supporting petty dictators in Venezuela and supporting the talking points of the Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong. You, you need, if you want to be credible, you need to, to start uh, recognizing the reality. And that is that there is evil in this world and that while there is some evil in our government, it exists everywhere. Um, and that you need to call out evil where it is because decent people expect that. And they're not going to listen to a Maduro defender when they talk about peace uh, in the Middle East. You, you, you can't defend evil people anywhere. It can't be okay over here and not okay over here. It's never okay. Right. So, you know, I, I see a question here from Josh Fletcher. He says, uh, loving the discussion, what's the best way to actually shift these countries towards the free market? And I think that's very uh, crucial for us to answer. And obviously, uh, I think trade plays a big role, right? We need to trade freely, even uh, with uh, places that are doing horrible things. Um, but the other uh, part of this is something I'm really focused on with my work with uh, the with Liberty International. We, we have... Uh, Liberty Camps, uh, which are events where we take young college students and entrepreneurs to kind of a campground-like environment or conference center-like environment. We have a three to five day program where we talk about classical liberal philosophy, about libertarianism and about entrepreneurship. Um, we recently hosted a, a free market academy in Mongolia that's hosted every year. We even have uh, free market uh, classes in China that, that we sponsor. And so I think education is huge. And uh, I'm, I'm committed to continuing to do that because you have to be able to tell people what the ideas are that are necessary to get out of this kind of hell that uh, these authoritarian governments are imposing on people. And that's kind of the work you do with Liberty International, right? You guys travel around and kind of school people on libertarianism and liberty and freedom and how to achieve this, right? Right. And I'm really proud of that work. You know, in the last couple of years, I've gone to Singapore where I talked about the virtues of being a lawbreaker. I, I did that uh, in, in, a, in an authoritarian country. Uh, I, I've been to Poland. I've speak, spoken in Poland. I've spoken in Uganda uh, where I gave multiple talks to a group of 80 students about uh, the finer points of capitalism and about uh, some uh, finer points of libertarian philosophy. And uh, we talked actually with some local Ugandans about the possibility of maybe this year or next year founding the libertarian 
Libertarian Party of Uganda. So I'm really hopeful that I'm going to get to go back to Uganda and join them for their uh, founding uh, and for, for, for all of that. So there's a lot of, uh, of stuff we're doing. And um, next, in about two weeks, I'm going to Colombia. I'm going to be giving a talk sponsored by the Libertarian Party of Colombia in Bogota. And then I'm going to be giving direct medical care to uh, refugees in Cucuta. Um, and so these are these are all things I'm really excited about. This is this is the most important thing to me. You know, I, I work in medicine and I love medicine, but I love way more when I get to go uh, and spread libertarian ideas all over the world. I hear you totally. I can't imagine how rewarding that must be to be able to do both. You know, it it is very very rewarding. Sometimes it's exhausting, but I'm willing to put up oh, with the sure. uh, It's really <laughs> worth it, and I'm I'm really excited also because uh, on my way to Colombia, I'm meeting. Uh, with somebody in Mexico who's interested in doing some liberty camps. And, um, you know, Mexico recently elected a leftist. Um, and his name is Obrador, or they call him AMLO because those are his uh, um, uh, initials. And he's doing everything he can right now to undermine the Mexican institutions and create an autocratic regime. And uh, fighting against Obrador internally in Mexico is going to be really important if we're going to avoid something like Venezuela happening on our southern border. So, um this uh, two weeks ago, I think, uh, and we're going to go like really off topic and I'll circle okay. it back, I promise. Uh, WWE ran a big show in Saudi Arabia and they've taken a lot of flack for that because they have this big uh, deal with the Saudi Arabian government to put on a couple wrestling shows every year and do these big spectacles. And it's, it's a propaganda thing. Saudi Arabia is paying them to do propaganda. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they don't let all of their wrestlers go. Like all the female wrestlers can't go compete. Uh, and then there's uh, one of the wrestlers is Syrian that they have one of their big guys. So they don't want him in the country. So. Yeah. So um, every time they do a pay-per-view in Saudi Arabia, he kicks off a, uh, like uh, it, it, you go to Sammy for Syria.com and, and the, he does like this, uh, fundraising for like mobile medical facilities for doctors in Syria to go um, like treat patients uh, in war zones, basically. Mm-hmm. Is that something that would be feasible in Venezuela or does the state still have too much control and that would get seized? Yeah, the state has too much control in Venezuela right now for any, for, for me or for any American I know to enter Venezuela. Uh, I have a ton of contacts in Venezuela, and the plan is that as soon as the usurpation ends uh, and, and I can get across the border, I'll be going um, and hopefully working in a hospital there on a volunteer basis. Um, and um, so getting across the border right now is not possible for an American, for most Americans, um, and certainly not for an American who's been a public uh, 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 voice against the usurpation. Um, but uh, I mean, you've. Sorry? You're an instigator. I'm an instigator, yes. And I, I will be an instigator for my whole life, I hope. Uh, but, uh, you know, you mentioned something about Saudi Arabia that is really promising because that kind of a cultural exchange has the ability to make so many, to change and open so many minds. And um, I think it's it's very important that we not shut off contact and not shut off commerce with people under oppressive regimes. 
I think it's really important that in whatever way they can, that the World Wrestling Entertainment Organization is able to, to deliver their content to Saudis. And it creates a, a little bit of friendship. You know, commerce creates friendship. And I'd, I'd obviously rather it be on more liberal terms, but you've got to take what you can get and then push for more when you can. And, um, and if we do that, I think we can take baby steps toward a freer world. But that kind of engagement is very positive in my view. I think so they because the WWE has taken a lot of flack for this. I agree. I think it's better to have them going putting on wrestling shows than us selling bombs. Uh Agreed. one of the things that they are work were working on uh so they just had the third show there and wow. they went down to the wire trying to get a women's match on this card and they couldn't do it. And the hope is that next time, maybe maybe the government relents and uh, two women get to wrestle in Saudi Arabia. Right, maybe. Would- but you know what? Even if they don't, the the viewers in Saudi Arabia know about this. There, you know, you it doesn't matter where in the world you are. The government cannot adequately control information on the internet because VPNs exist, because people mm-hmm. talk in codes. They do all this. They know this. The viewers have to know about this controversy. And what that means is that they know that um, somewhere in the world, women's roles is not what it is in Saudi Arabia. And so they they intuitively understand that kind of injustice, and it creates a little bit of internal pressure and not as much pressure as we'd like but it's this process of engagement that i think we have to go through uh you know again it's it's not like like i i would love to just snap my fingers and make the saudi monarchy go away uh, but in the absence of the ability to do that i'd like to see us take baby steps and um uh, and with, with the hope that one day the saudi monarchy falls uh and and hopefully what replaces it is a liberal uh, or, or something more liberal and 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 saudi arabia can start to develop inclusive economic institutions political freedoms and 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 grow into a free place i mean my 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 wish for the world is that that inclusive economic institutions liberal democracies and so forth will rise up everywhere so that every human being has the opportunity to live a fully actualized life because when you live under these autocratic authoritarian regimes your life is just like capped you don't get to develop into who you are you don't get to actualize your life you don't get to realize your potential and that's not just a loss for the people there it's a loss for everybody because you know maybe the person who's going to develop who would have developed a cure for hiv is a woman in saudi arabia who was denied entry to college Maybe it's somebody killed, and you know, when you see that uh, you know free market capitalism goes to a new place, those people become new trading partners, and the world, everybody in the world, becomes richer because of that. So we all have an interest in the freedom of our brothers and sisters anywhere in the world. You're absolutely correct. And when markets are free, people are more free. Right, and I, I, I mean, I, I think that that is a, a fundamental difference between what I think. And what I think some uh, another school of thought in libertarianism thinks. There's an inward-looking school of thought in libertarianism that says we should be concerned with things that happen inside U.S. borders, and we should be nihilistic with respect to whatever happens anywhere else in the world. And I, that shocks my conscience. I cannot be nihilistic towards the plight of human beings who are oppressed in other places in the world. If, if there's somebody in the world who's not free, I'm not free. Well, that's... 
understanding and I, I totally feel you. It's it's overwhelming because there's too many places where people are not free and so unfree. It's unreal, unbelievable. You know, I get messages from people in countries all over the world who they say, yeah, I, I'm a libertarian or, you know, I want to be and I want to start a libertarian you know, party here or some sort of uh, group. And I'm like, do it. It just takes one person. But uh, it's so sad that there are so, so many places that are so unfree. Right. There, it is. It is. And and you see, you know, little glimmers of hope in places, you know, in Cuba, there's a libertarian party. They, they meet in secret. There aren't a lot of them, but these are some of the most amazing people. And they, uh, they are spreading libertarian ideas. They've smuggled in libertarian books. They have discussions about free market economics in their houses. There's there's this undercurrent of, you know, no matter where you are, the human spirit wants to be free and libertarian ideas are attractive everywhere. So if you ever have somebody from somewhere else in the world who wants to start a libertarian party or wants to do something in the libertarian movement, send them my way. And chances are I may know somebody else in their country who does or be able to connect them. Maybe I can go there and help them. I, 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 this, is, this is my specialty is the international libertarian movement. And I, I'm always eager to meet people from anywhere in the world. And, and okay. their goals to, to promote the, these ideas uh, in places where it's a lot harder to promote them than in the U.S. Well, yeah, you have obviously much more reach and much more opportunity to do that. I will definitely, the next time I get one of these, and you know what, I'm going to go search through and hook you up with some people. Great. I appreciate that. Absolutely. I appreciate everything you do. It's unbelievable. Honestly, Kyle. I, I remember, uh, and I, this hasn't happened as much recently, but last year I was getting um, a lot of African friend like friend requests from Africa, and and I would accept them because I would just go through and do like mass accepting, and then it's like, oh no, this is going to be someone asking me for money because that's typically how that goes. But no, if a lot of these people were asking for books. And, yeah. and maybe that's a form of currency and maybe it is asking for money, but they seem more interested in like, can, can you send me books about libertarianism? Right. And, and I mean, I, I've tried to send as many as I can. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, the libertarians in Africa are really great people. You know, it's sub-Saharan Africa. They, they live, they, they suffer in the ways that, that we, on a daily basis, in ways that we would find unimaginable. Uh, my first day in Uganda, I saw somebody get hit by a car and uh, ended up taking them in my car with my driver to the hospital, offering to help out the doctor and realizing just how extremely deficient everything was. And, um, and, and I, I got to know how people there live and oh my God, it's rough, you know, but in the midst of all of this hardship, you know, in Uganda, they have a libertarian study and lending library uh, that I, I got to visit and they have all kinds of libertarian books on the shelves. People come there, borrow books, sit there and read it, talk about whatever they, they're, they're with, with so little, they've done so much already. And I can't wait to see what they do in the future. That's awesome. You know, I heard, um, I can't remember if was it when we had Zach Foster on, when he was talking about Venezuela, talking about downloading books onto USBs and taking those because it's small, it's compact, and the government takes and seizes any kind of literature that they find on people. Mm -hmm. 
Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. So USBs and digital books are really great because you can also send them electronically sometimes. Uh, you do reach a limitation because people need to be able to access the USB, but uh, the, these are things that can kind of be done inside the country. I think it's uh, uh, technology has really been our friend. Uh, the internet yeah. has penetrated even the darkest uh, corners of the earth and uh, we can get our ideas in there. Uh, you know, they're doing the same thing in North Korea. Uh, they're putting rice in water bottles and inside the rice, they put uh, a USB that's full of uh, literature, South Korean dramas, all this kind of stuff. And they chuck it into the ocean where the current will take it to North Korea. And they've got confirmation that people in North Korea are picking these up. They pick it up for the rice, but then they also get a USB or they get a feminine hygiene product uh, along with it, or they get oh, that's amazing. medication. They get these things. So they're able to help the, the people of North Korea in this in this way. That's what our North Korean or our Korean friend talked about in Mongolia is that project to send rice and information directly to the North Korean people. Hmm. That's an amazing program. It is. It is. I, I next time I'm in uh, South Korea, I want to go and uh, participate in throwing the bottles with the rice into the ocean. Is there anybody else in the world who is more cut off than North Koreans from the rest of the world? I, I, Maybe Turkmenistan. Um, hmm? Maybe Turkmenistan. Turkmenistan has. Uh, you might want to explain where that is because I don't think most people. Well, it's in Central Asia. It's one of the Central Asian stands, and um, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know anybody from Turkmenistan. I don't know anybody who's been able to go to Turkmenistan and fight for freedom there. Um, I don't even know about like a Turkmenistan freedom movement yet, but I know that things are very, very, very bad in Turkmenistan. Um, and so if, if there's anywhere in the world that would compare to North Korea, it's probably there, but uh, everything's really opaque. So it's hard to say for sure, which is worse. Well, so, I guess I'm Scott, you haven't said anything this whole time. Yeah, I'm sorry, Scott. <laughs> no, it's okay, man. I uh, just taking it all in. It's been, it's been great listening to you talk um you know the things that i i wanted to talk about this evening were uh i definitely wanted to talk a, a little bit more about your upcoming book uh the white coat cartels i'm very intrigued by that uh concept okay. of that book so that, tell us a little bit about that is that out already i keep forgetting it's it's not out yet the first draft is written and i'm at working every day with my editor to make it better my editor is drives a uh, a very uh, firm uh uh bargain or whatever. He's, he's very, uh, very, very strict with me. So we've been working very hard. And my hope is within a couple of months, we'll have it out. Uh, so here's the here's the deal with the healthcare market in the United States. It's everybody is suffering because prices are really high and service is really bad. Why? Because regulation restricts entry into the profession and creates scarcity. That is the definition of a cartel. A cartel is when you have a few businesses who have a complete hold on the market. They basically cooperate and they exploit, uh, exploit uh, the consumer. And that's what's happening in medicine. Doctors have formed a cartel using state licensures, state medical boards, and control of the process to become a doctor. They've actually capped the numbers of doctors using the government. Pharmaceutical companies have a cartel using a Byzantine system of regulations. Hospitals have cartels. Every hospital you go to pretty much has a little bit of a monopoly on their own local market. And insurance companies have a cartel. Everywhere in the healthcare market, that you, what you see is scarcity prompted by regulation. And so the thesis of my book is that regulation creates scarcity in the market and it results in the exploitation of consumers. And that when you're suffering from healthcare problems in the United States, the problem is not the market, the problem is the government. And if we wanna fix these problems, we need free market solutions that lead to more abundance and lower prices. The way markets work 
is abundance and low prices. That's the natural thing to happen. But when the government starts regulating, you get less abundance and higher prices. And that's why everybody's suffering so much. And if we don't start now by to address these problems with the healthcare market, we're going to see nationalization of healthcare in the United States because people are desperate for a solution. And demagogues from the left are trying to sell them a bill of goods by saying the government can do a better job. We can't defend the current system. We have to propose radical changes that free the market so that consumers can win instead of having entrenched special interests winning. So how uh, take do me, people... Sorry, go ahead, Scott. No, uh, take, me, take me back to, to a young Kyle Varner entering med school. I mean, had you already had this, this mindset of the medical field or was there a, was there a moment in your, in your career where you, the light bulb just kicked on for you wow. and you were like, Hey, this is happening. And, and I'm surrounded by it, you right. know? Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So I've always been a libertarian, but I didn't know that much about the healthcare market when I started going to medical school. And I went to a foreign medical school because I didn't have the grades to get into a medical school in the United States. And then what I learned is that almost 50% of the people who go to a foreign medical school don't ever end up practicing medicine because they can't get residencies. And then I started learning about why. And the reason is because organized medicine has basically used the government to cap the number of residency slots. So they've actually capped the supply of doctors. And so what I learned is that I had to fight tooth and nail to get a residency. And then once I got the residency, I was in the club. I was in the cartel. I could make the big bucks, not really have any competition. Uh, I mean, I have recruiters call me multiple times a day, every day. They won't leave me alone because I, might, I have something that's scarce. I have a medical license. And that scarcity plays to my favorite. So that's when I really started to understand. And I started looking at other sectors of the economy and realizing that barriers to entry are the huge, huge problem. You know, I also, as a practicing doctor, began to understand really how horrible things are for patients in terms of the prices they pay and in terms of the service they get in your traditional medical centers. And I started becoming very interested in the direct primary care movement, which is where doctors reject the insurance companies and contract directly with their patients. I started getting very interested in things like health sharing organizations in uh, medical tourism, because I was a medical tourist myself while I was in medical school. I had surgery in Mexico that I could never have afforded in the United States. And so it really shaped my views of saying, hey, there are market-based solutions to this. And there are non-political market-based solutions as well, because you can opt out of this uh, compromise system by dropping your health insurance and getting on a health sharing plan. You can opt out of the hospital cartels by going to Mexico or other places in the world to receive surgeries. You can use direct primary care. And there's a whole... Uh, basically a whole toolbox of tools that can get you lower prices, better service, and more control over your health care. And so I'm really committed to teaching people about those tools. And white coat cartels is the first step. But I've also recorded a uh, approximately six-hour video course teaching people how to take control of their health care. And that's called the Cash Patients Rebellion. If you go to drvarner.com slash cash rebellion, you can sign up for when the course launches and you can get a 50% discount on it. Um, but it's, I think there, there are two sides. There's the political side. What, we have to fight on the political side to free the market. What is your, your six-hour video called again? I'm sorry. I want to write this down. Rebellion. And it's uh, drvarner.com slash cash rebellion. And it's an entire course that includes supplementary reading materials, uh, lots of information about direct primary care, about health sharing organizations, medical tourism, how to take care of yourself and opt out of the centralized third-party system. Because so I think a lot of people are looking towards cash-based healthcare because even when you have healthcare, like I know my insurance, I've been told by doctors and nurses I have good insurance. Yeah, the, the, the way for them to treat you like milk cow. 
all kinds of tests and all kinds of things. It's, it's, it can actually and, be or my insurance is not really usable anymore like it used to be. Like copays are a thing of the past that's ridiculous for good insurance. Like I work for a pretty big com I work for an international company, a pretty large company, and my insurance is still shit. It's, so I'm looking for a job. Uh, Zach just got a job. I have an interview with the place that he's going to. And this place offers you um, – their insurance or a uh, differential per hour to buy your own insurance. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty cool. They uh, contract for uh, the VA. So they process claims and try and help. So actually, can, can I jump in on this part? Please. Uh, because uh, this is something I've had to deal with and something this may be exciting for you uh, that this is starting to happen. Um, so you know how when you try to, when uh, you see a, vet, a disabled vet and they have the VA care and they're seeing someone out of uh, the VA because the VA can't get them in on, on time. Like that's a law now. Yeah. So uh, something that was a really big problem is doctors weren't being paid for that. Right. Uh, and a lot of doctors would then refuse to see disabled veterans because of it. Well, uh, it got to be such a problem that now the VA is subcontracting this company to come in and make sure that like all these doctors are getting paid properly. So it's like an external company coming in to make sure uh, the money's there. And that uh, like, if there's a problem, like a paperwork issue, uh, it gets fixed so that doctors will get paid and hopefully actually want to see disabled veterans again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's no end to the kind of problems that happen when you take a third party and make them in charge of paying because it induces really bad problems with incentives. The patients and the doctors no longer care what the cost is going to be, which means the third party has to start putting restrictions and rationing the care you receive. But now the patient is no longer in control. And so what we really need to move towards is a system where the patient has the money and they make the financial decision. And so, you know, I, I would advocate like for veterans that they be given money, not care and that they be then allowed to make decisions about what kind of care they want and what level of care they want. You know, if they think that, a, a, you know, a, a cruise around the world is, is more important than a certain medical procedure that is being recommended, they should have the right not to get the medical procedure. But right now, that, that's not an option. So the, the decisions that are being made aren't reflective of the patient's actual preferences. And the way you change that is by putting the money into the hands of the patient. And only when we make our only when we, we, we have the consequences of the decision um, as our own, do we actually get decisions that are rational. We have to bear the costs and then also the benefits. And the third party payer system just rips that into shreds. Well, let's hope that's the wave of the damn future, you know, for doctors and patients alike. I think it is the wave of the future. Direct primary care is catching on. People are rejecting this. We have to work on increasing the supply of doctors and mid-level providers, nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Right now, there's huge fights about the practice rights of nurse practitioners and physicians assistants all over the country. And my opinion is we need freedom. Let the nurse practitioners and PAs practice. Let them compete in an open market with doctors and let patients be the judge. But instead, doctors want to go to state legislatures and try to keep the physician's assistants and nurse practitioners down, keep them under the doctor's thumb. You know, a lot of good quality medical literature says that outcomes are the same between doctors and NPs and PAs. But doctors don't like that and call it into question. But they have a financial conflict of interest to do so. We need exactly. to let people decide. So, so that means let the patients decide. You're, like, 
this is this is your profession. So honestly, how much does a doctor need to know for the basics, like a kid coming in with a cold? Like, well, you know, it's it, you have to know. I, I think the more you know, the better, because you have to know when it's just a cold and when it's not. And sometimes things can be subtle, and you know, years of experience can lead you to pick up some dangerous things that look benign at the be to, to begin with. So I, I don't want to discount the importance of experience, but at the same time. Um, we, you know, you you pay for that experience, and we're and we're paying over ten thousand dollars per year per person in the United States for healthcare, and so you have to have a balance, right, between paying for the experience and and not. And I don't think there's any one person who can tell you where that balance is. But that's the beautiful thing about a decentralized market where individual consumers make decisions is they find that balance, and it's what works for them. And so what, what I mean, I, what I would just say is we have to take the decision making out of the centrally controlled uh, government planned system. We have to take the central decision making away and put it in the hands of the patients and they're going to do what's best for them. That's so, what that's free market 101. So like it, you're talking about experience. So in my mind, that that tells me a nurse practitioner with 30 years of medical experience is going to be better than a doctor fresh out of uh, their residency. Uh, yeah, I, I I would agree with that, especially you know depending on the specialty and depending on so but it's like, right obviously yeah. yeah if you're a nurse practitioner who's worked in primary care for thirty years or you're a doctor out of a three year residency, I think for most primary care the nurse practitioner may be better or the doctor may be better because their training is more recent depending on how how much uh, yeah, uh, continuing education somebody's done there's a, there are a lot of factors but you can't have a centralized right. making the decision. Is there a, a, a minimum per year of continuing ed for doctors or is that every couple of years? Uh, well, it depends based on the state, uh, but usually it's about 50 hours every two years of, of CME credits, um, which I actually find that I get just uh, because I get CME credits based on a program that I use, which is a reference. So I look something up for my patient and then it logs the time I spent reading for my patient and it logs that as CME. And so I end up getting all my CME just by like reading for my patients. When I have a patient where something isn't clear and I need to reference, I get for doing that. And so that's, that's, that's nice. But then they also have their special favorite class, opioid management, suicide prevention, LGBT healthcare. Uh, and I have so many state licenses that I, I get bogged down in a lot of this stuff. I have to take so many like, you know, random classes. That's the pet, the pet project of this one medical board is this pet project. Yeah. Of this medical board is How that. many states were you licensed in? 25 as of today. Holy uh, shit. Yeah. It, I, I'm working on getting rid of some of them because I don't want to pay the renewal fees. But I, I assume it's necessary for my style of practice to have a lot of licenses so that when, uh, you know, because I like to go somewhere when a hospital gets in real trouble in terms of staffing and the pay gets really good. And then I go there and help them out. And then once they get more people on board, I, I leave. And, um, and I just kind of, but I need to have a lot of licenses in order for those opportunities to come up regularly for me. But yeah, that's a lot of fees. So we do need to wrap up here because right. I've learned that my video files get too big when I let these conversations go on too long. All so. right. Well, hey, guys, thanks for having me. And remember, um, you know, you can go to drvarner.com slash cash rebellion uh, and you can get a 50 percent discount for when my course launches, which should be in the next couple of days. Yep. Um, and uh, I just also want to point out, uh, 
In terms of um, people ask how they can help Venezuela, helpingvenezuela.com is a soup kitchen run in Venezuela, um, and uh, they're they're providing food, uh, meals to people who are malnourished. Uh, that's probably the number one thing you can do right now. Um, you know, I've made promise to a lot of activists in Venezuela that if they get uh, in a situation where their life or their freedom is in danger because of their political activity, that I'll help finance their escape from the country. And if things go bad in Venezuela or work, if things if things get worse in Venezuela and something like that happens, I may be calling on the libertarian community to help get our libertarian friends out. But right now they want to stay and fight and we need to support them in their fight. Yeah, good for them. Fight All the right. good for our brothers and sisters. Definitely. If, if that becomes a thing, let us know immediately and we'll, we'll blast Absolutely. it out. Um, Absolutely. Wonderful. So, thank you guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Varner for coming on. Uh, thank, thank you, you Scott for jumping in. Uh, and you'll probably see a lot more of Scott um like because we're expanding to basically two podcasts a week hopefully soon uh you're seeing some of that already so i'm gonna i'm gonna burn through co-hosts if i don't uh start rotating people in and out so um so thank you the launchpad media uh launchpad the launchpadmedia.com uh this episode will go up in a couple days uh it has to go up on youtube first um Thank you, everyone, for being a part of this, and we'll see you next week.